This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. It's also found at all the major podcast outlets. And if you go to uh, youtube.com, just type in three words, Spirit Matters Talk. And uh, we have many shows that will pop up there. Uh, please, if you're watching or listening, uh, hit the subscribe button. It's free. And for anybody out there who's uh, helped us make by making a contribution to keep us on the air and to keep our archives free and open to the public, thank you very much. And if anybody would like to be amongst those that uh, have done that or do that in the future, uh, go to spiritmatterstalk.com and that information is there. We have had many wonderful guests on recently, and we have a great guest back on the show today, somebody we enjoyed and got uh, wonderful feedback on last time, uh, that, uh, Paul Mueller Ortega. Uh, he is a longtime student of Kashmir Shaiva tradition. He has his doctorate from the University of California. Uh, he is well published. Uh, he taught at uh, Michigan State University and um, is a real, uh, in my opinion, Vedic scholar uh, as who has studied East and West and uh, much to say. And uh, for those that didn't hear his first interview, it's in our archives. And uh, we'll start today uh, by welcoming him back on the show and thanking you so very much, Paul, for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you guys. It's wonderful to see you. It's Welcome back, Paul. Um, listeners and viewers, uh, we, as Dennis said, interviewed Paul uh, a couple of years ago, I guess. And uh, we talked about his personal path at that time. So if you want to hear more about uh, uh, his uh, journey, we commend that first interview. And so we'll dispense with those biographical details this time. Uh, Paul, uh, one of the reasons I was really eager to get you back on the show is Kashmir Shaivism has seems to be emerging in the uh, awareness of spiritual seekers, academics. Um, it's, it's kind of been in the, in the shadows of spirituality uh, for most people, um, but it seems to be emerging. So my question to you is, is that true? Is my observation true? And if so, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I don't follow sort of the sociological trends of what's kind of emerging in that way, as well as I may have at some other point. So I'm, but it is true that certainly over the last many years, there have been an increasing number of publications of different teachers and scholars and of even just references to uh, this particular tradition that have that are sort of coming more you know to the forefront and uh, um, it's certainly also true that this is a tradition historically speaking that in a certain sense was also lost in India itself in other words that though it is a non-dual path to the absolute it was superseded largely speaking historically speaking by Advaita Vedanta which is as you know we can distinguish these two and say Advaita Vedanta primarily teaches what could be classified as a renunciatory path to the absolute consciousness. And the Kashmir Shaiva tradition 
brought forward something very different. It was still, it's an esoteric non-dual tradition to the realization of the great absoluteness, but it was amenable and accessible and in fact formulated uh, for householders in particular. Um, and I think that that's part of the current appeal of people that, you know, this distinction, which is an extraordinarily important distinction, uh, that is still not very clear as it were in the wider marketplace of ideas between a renunciatory path and a householder path and so on. And, that, and that then understanding the historical bases, how did it happen that we have these two very different formulations for spirituality that emerge uh, from India, and that then at a certain moment, for many historical reasons, uh, Keshavi Shaivism, as it were, is submerged and is lost. I mean, part of it is that uh, the coming of Islam actually to the northern part of India and certainly to Kashmir uh, removes the kind of support historically that was given by the Maharajas and you know other important figures for these great scholar guru saints, these magnificent you know, enlightened beings that, that lived and taught and wrote voluminously uh, for many, many centuries in Kashmir and particularly, and also in other areas. The term Kashmir Shaivism, I mean, just to be slightly pedantic is a little bit of a misnomer because it's also found in other places as well. Uh, and it also then historically also spreads to the South of India as well. A tremendous number of writers and scholars, even for example, in Chidambaram, which I know you visited, and in uh, uh, Kanchipuram, uh, and so on, and other places. Paul, Paul could you, uh, uh, there was a little glitch. Could you say oh, even, yeah. did you say even a Shankara, as in Adi Shankaracharya? No, no. I, I said even, uh, you find uh, authors of the Kashmir Shaiva tradition uh, in the later period in the south of India as well, not just in the north in Kashmir. And I was mentioning, for example, you know, the very famous temple city of Chidambaram, uh, and also of Kanchipuram, where in fact later authors who write in this particular vein are also to be found in, and elsewhere as well. Um, it's a very, it, you know, it's a very, it's very attractive tradition in that regard, in the sense that it doesn't require people to uh, establish, a, you know, a strictly renunciatory lifestyle. And in fact, there's a different, it has a different philosophy and perspective on on these two paths, as it were. And then it, it includes also, it subsumes actually a number of paths. You know, Abhinavagupta himself, who was this massive uh, kind of polymathic genius is one of the great minds that emerged uh, from medieval India, just an extraordinary author at such an incredible level. Uh, and so on was so renowned and famous during his life, just a luminary of enlightened consciousness. And, you know, his writing then, uh, took into account in a certain sense a variety of different approaches to uh, the path, to the method, to upaya, to the marga, as it were, uh, that he was accounting for, and then articulated specific variations of different kinds of sadness that were appropriate for different kinds of individuals who might find themselves practicing at one or another of these levels. It's, a, it's, it's one of the, you know, kind of theoretical um, genius works and his uh, most famous work is called the Tantra Loka, the shedding the light on the great revealed scriptures of the Tantras and Agamas. So, you know, for many reasons, I think this is, is something that is attractive to people who want to walk a path and don't necessarily find themselves ready to live, you know, an entirely or strictly right. renunciatory lifestyle in that way, you know. Paul, I'm curious, uh, 
I, I meant to ask you this last time. You resigned uh, from your university post in 2009. Something a lot of people don't do. It's very, very difficult to get a university post. Yes. Uh, to, and, and, and the reason I read was to teach about uh, Shaiva uh, tradition to a wider audience. Um, two things. One is, did you feel somewhat restricted in uh, your uh, uh, ability to teach what you want to teach in that university uh, setting? And, uh, and how uh, do you reach a wider audience? What, what, what avenues do you go down? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's um, those are two wonderful questions. You know, um, I didn't feel restricted in terms of what I actually taught in the university. I had a wonderful time both at Michigan State and then subsequently for 12 years at the University of Rochester, many, many hundreds of great students and, you know, created lots of courses. But I think that at a certain moment, I, you know, I kind of, it wasn't even kind of an intellectual, you know, decision with pros and cons and so on. It was just something that moved inside me. It said, I, it's, I want to have a different season of my life in which I am able to teach in a way that is not appropriate or sort of ethically possible within the setting of the university, at least as the as university settings were formulated at that time, and particularly wanting to offer practices of uh, kind of initiatory practices of meditation and other practices from the tradition, which I think that, you know, I think that as a university professor, one has a certain degree of hesitation involving students in that way so that, you know, now in terms of, I mean, I, I spent uh, up until, you know, two years ago, I spent uh, the better part of 13 years traveling around uh, in the United States, Canada, uh, in Europe, and so on. And, you know, giving discourses, giving talks, giving courses, a tremendous number of retreats, et cetera, and so on. And for me, it hasn't ever been about numbers, per se. It's more about a certain kind of person who comes with a hunger for deep practice and also for a system of study that is that is very you know complex and intricate and but also deeply comprehensible and accessible that you know I call the you know the theory of the practice we have the practice of the practice and then the theory of the practice from the tradition which explains many many things that are very very fascinating for example about mantra or about initiation itself or what constitute the levels of meditation or the levels even the whole discourse surrounding levels of enlightenment, et cetera, and so on, that are articulated in great detail in the tradition. So that it's been really fascinating to be able to offer, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. Paul, I want to uh, get back to the relationship between Kashmir Shaivism and Vedanta and also yoga, the yoga tradition. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, it's my ignorance, but when I hear people speak often of, of Kashmir Shaivism, I say, well, that sounds awfully like a lot of the Vedanta teachers I know. It sounds very yogic. Um, and I think maybe they're being too academic and splitting hairs. And my, along with my own impression is, it, it seems to me that a lot of the gurus, as opposed to academics, um, they don't make those distinctions so easily. They seem to draw on whatever works <laughs> like some of the ones we knew back in the exactly. 70s. Exactly. I never heard uh, some of them speak explicitly about Kashmir Shaivism, but it's clear that they were influenced by it. Yeah. And they were also, uh, you know, Vedantists, often Advaitists, um, and they taught for householders, but they were enunciates. And it all gets, right. you know, a little fuzzy. 
Uh, so do you agree with that assessment and how do you, how do you, uh, explain it? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, my understanding of even the access to this tradition is that many of those teachers only had very preliminary forms of access to, uh, this particular tradition. And, you know, if you dial the clock back to the 1970s and so on, they may have had access, for example, to this short text, the Pratyavigna Hridayam, uh, by a secondary author of the tradition, The Heart of Recognition. It's a very beautiful text. And or they may have had some preliminary access to the Shiva Sutras and so on, but that the major access to the very complex uh, and much more philosophically dense teachings uh, for example, Abhinavagupta, uh, were really, it just wasn't there in a certain uh. kind of way. And so that, and I think that also, you know, it's part of the tradition to, I mean, there's a different kind of story here, which is a complex historical one in a certain kind of way, which is that when Kashmir Shaivism, as it were, which by the way, it's, it's an important thing to, to talk about briefly, which is that though it's called a Shaiva tradition, it's more precise to call it a Shakta Shaiva tradition, which has its primary sadhana focus on a series or sequence of goddesses that are primarily extraordinarily important in the teachings of the tradition. So that you do have traditions that are purely Shaiva, um, where are focused on forms of Shiva, for example, Sadashiva, solitary form of Shiva that we often see, meditating in the Himalayas, et cetera, with not, you know, the, the, the bull Nandan in the corner, et cetera, and so on. But, but this tradition was focused on a sequence of, there were different streams, lineage streams of the Shakta Shaiva tradition. And part of what happens historically is that when this tradition really dies out as a living initiatory lineage stream in Kashmir, which we don't exactly know when that happened, but it's probably somewhere in the 12th century uh, and so on, uh, for many reasons. Um, then the teachings of this tradition are also very widespread and disseminated. Abhinavagupta's uh, kind of uh, fame, his, his illustriousness, then means that his texts are studied and attempted to be applied one of the things that happens then is that one of those goddess stream traditions, uh, which is predominantly now mainly located in the South, but was also located in, um, in Kashmir at that time, which is centered on the goddess, the goddess Lalita Tripura Sundari, uh, who is the famous goddess of the Sri Vidya tradition. That particular tradition at a certain moment also gets historically appropriated by the Dashanami Shankara, Shankaraite Advaita Vedanta institution in which they begin to practice simultaneously and initiate their renunciate monks, practitioners in their matas into what they call a Vaidika and a Tantrika forms of sadhana. And the Tantrika form of sadhana was entirely based on the application of Kashmir Shaiva teachings as those had been modified in what later on is called the Sri Vidya. Is originally have the Shiva Vidya, then the Sri Vidya in that way, and that that sort of that sort of amalgam of those two, in which you had side by side practice, is something that then is historically carried forward. It has ironies to it. Uh, the primary one being that monks were practicing what was primarily seemingly intended for householders, but that the the the, the benefit of it was that that the preservation of that tradition in other places it happened as well. Well, of course, but that it preserved a lot of these teachings historically within these matas. And then there was a kind of there was a kind of historical 
um, just a, a felt a lack of needing to differentiate between the, as if they were separate in that way. They had they had they weren't merged. They weren't fused. But there was a kind of amalgam of both the pure Vedantic formulation, um, and, which is you know entirely renunciatory in character, and then the uh, the the, the Sri Vidya tradition, which is primarily a tradition that even today in India uh, is practiced primarily in household or lineage streams. Uh, et cetera, and so on. So, what then, Paul, if I could ask that, yeah. the main difference in terms of practice between what the renunciate would practice and what the householder would practice, is there a, a significant difference? Uh, and if so, what is that? And in your, your blue throat yoga, are you mostly dealing with non-renunciates? Yes. It, uh, to answer the last question first, absolutely. Yes. I don't, I don't teach renunciates, and I've had people come to me who I kind of intuited or that I just in discourse with them realized were meant for a renunciatory tradition. And I've said to them, of course, you're welcome to be in satsang and, and community with us. But in fact, your path is really elsewhere and so on. And, and you know, I, a number of people, I won't name names, who have then gone on to, you know, receive sannyas, et cetera, in India and so on, who hung out with us for a while. But I, I don't offer you know initiation to renunciates I, I think that that's something that renunciates need to do you know for themselves in that way that's the tradition only renunciates should should initiate renunciates in that way so but I think that from a I, I'm not I'm now not speaking about this amalgam in the in in the in the uh, the dashanami you know matas as it were the famous uh, Shankarai Vedantin matas but from a from a particularly a focus on Householder practice versus renunciatory practice. It does a lot of it, in my opinion, comes down to technicalities of mantra and different kinds of mantras. And and this is something that you know, if you were to ask, where is the topic of mantra most particularly pursued in technical detail in the Indian tradition writ large? It is here in this tradition, uh, which is which one of the names that it has for itself is the mantra marga, the path of mantra in that way that differentiates itself from there is a Shaiva renunciatory tradition as well that precedes it. It's called the Ati Marga and so on. And those two you know, coexist and mutually influence each other. But the, the teaching, the teachings around mantra, in particular, notions of different kinds of mantras, and also the differentiation of mantras for householders versus mantras for renunciates is an extraordinarily important technical distinction that is already found in the text of the tradition and that is then replicated historically in many, many of the sort of technical manuals of the tradition. I think that, you know, the, the, the notion of those mantras that lead to an ultimate transcendence and a kind of, and a kind of eradication of life into the absolute uh, that are renunciatory in character versus those mantras, the character of which is to elicit from that transcendental source of absoluteness, the flow of divine creativity of the Mahashakti herself, which then surges up to transform the individual and the life of the individual in a variety of different ways that are very, almost the opposite in a certain kind of sense from uh, what happens for renunciates. The, the, the renunciate wishes to, in a certain sense, wishes to disappear. Let me disappear into the ocean, as it were. Let my drop, as it were, vanish and dissolve into the ocean. And 
the practice of the of the of the householders is very different. It's this idea of the surging up, as it were, once again, and that the technicalities with regard to mantra that say certain mantras have certain effects, certain other mantras have certain other effects. The idea that it, you know, I mean, we still hear these sorts of things. People say, well, all mantras are the same, et cetera. So yes, from some absolute level, you know, this was a statement that Baba Muktananda makes in his play of consciousness book when he tells the story of his initiation with Bhagavanatiananda. But nevertheless, at a, at a more surface level of life, these are different instruments that are meant to have different results. And when one wants to pursue the technical details of that, this is the tradition. The topic is called Matrika Shakti, the potency of language, the potency of the word, the potency of the vibration, the spanda, the vibratory character, and how that is modulated when you take a particular mantra and merge it with individual awareness. What are the different kinds of results? It's kind of like chemistry in a certain sense. You get different results from different kinds of combinations and, 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 and sort of solutions, et cetera, and so on. So I would say that's part of it. You know, I mean, there's much more, obviously. Paul, um, let's let's ask a basic question. When somebody hears the word Shiva, and they go to uh, uh, Wikipedia, or they're in a comparative religion class, right. and they hear, well, Shaivites worship Shiva, and Vaishnavites worship Vishnu, exactly. and Shiva is the god of destruction in yes. the trinity exactly. of uh, Hinduism. Right. Right. What do you, what does, in Kashmir Shaivism, what does Shiva mean? <laughs> right. So that's a wonderful question. Thank you for that. Beautiful. All these questions are great. You know, I think that, I think that that is an understanding that is transmitted and perpetuated at what might be called a kind of conventional level of a certain kind of, of, of religion in that way. And that we differentiate then between a religious understanding that wishes to compactify the, the, the Trimurti, the Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva into this, this triune deity that then is associated with these different actions, manifestation, maintenance, and dissolution, assigning you know, the value of dissolution to... Now, the Shaiva tradition itself, as, mod, as exemplified in a more esoteric department, as it were, more esoteric tradition, then says, no, all of those there are actually five sublime actions that this reality is continuously performing, including you know, manifestation, maintenance, dissolution, but also concealment and revelation. They're called the panchakritias, the five divine actions. And there, the, though you do have anthropomorphic and also mythological representations of Shiva, the primary statements that Abhinavagupta wishes to make, and many of the teachers of the tradition wish to make is that that is just a way of representing something which is which is which is inconceivable and transcendental in its character and what is being talked about is this this unboundedness of absolute consciousness and and a, an attempt to peer into that structure of ultimacy of transcendental reality and in order to be able to have discourse about it what are the different ways that from language and through art history you know art, art historical representations Etc. and so on. So it's not it's not about sort of what could be called the conventional worship. You see this, you know, in the different temples. When you went to Chidambaram, for example, and so you see Nataraja exquisite, you know, worship of Nataraja. Shiva Kamasundari is standing by his side. Also, this Murti of Bhairava and of Dakshinamurti, etc. and so on in a different part of that temple. So you have these different representations of the deity. But even in 
Chidambaram, then when the, you know, when the Dikshitar priests uh, want to talk about it, to say, yes, but this is just a representation. It represents, this is the heart of the universe. This is the absolute ultimate sort of source place, et cetera, and so on. And yes, we, we worship at a conventional level. We offer prayers. We offer offerings in that way. We receive grace and blessings, et cetera, and so on in that sort of transactional way. But at the higher level is the understanding of this ultimacy of reality, which is to a certain degree, in, in the, the ordinary mind is incapable of encompassing what that reality truly is. And it is left in that sense to the great practitioners to say, it is only when there is this repeated and assiduous practice in which the immersion into that condition inside an individual takes place over a long time that we even begin to get some notion of the features or contours or dimensions or what it is that is really being talked about. And of course, then the Kashmir tradition uses a tremendous number of exquisitely beautiful terms. One of them is this idea of Prakasha, the Mahaprakasha, the great light this exquisiteness of this divine luminosity within which everything dissolves ultimately, and in the heart of which actually stands this mysterious potency that is the, the source place from which everything emanates, and that is the, the sort of the, the invisible engine of reality itself, and that access to that means that you as an individual lose your awareness temporarily of your body, of your mind, of your personality, of the time period you're in, and you merge with this exquisiteness, the character of which it's, it's alive. It's not just a concept or idea. It is this in, hyper intense luminosity in which then what you experience is indescribable bliss, indescribable love, compassion, knowledge, understanding, comprehension, and also a relinquishment of any form of limitation that may persist uh, within your mind, et cetera, and so on. And then there is a return, as it were, of the individual back into their you know, I use the analogy of the of the life, the wave and the ocean. The you know, the wave subsumes itself into that oceanic totality. Then it rearises once again in its individuality, but it rearises transformed, empowered, refined, energized in a certain kind of way. Um, you know, purified in so many different ways, and that that's you know that's part of it. So Shiva there is yes, it, you know, it's understood that you have all these extraordinarily beautiful representations. Some of them are what, what's called salmya. They're very sweet. They're very appealing. They're very beautiful. And then you have also the opposite, what are called the raudra representations that are the frightening faces, as it were. And this represents, as it were, the two sides, in a certain sense, the two sides of, of the divine, of reality itself uh, in that way. So yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great point. Uh, Paul, I'm curious uh, when you uh, have aspects of uh, Kashmir Shaivism that you want to go more deeply into. When you have questions, uh, is there a teacher or teachers uh, that you uh, go to that you uh, do further study with? I I unfortunately don't have any such uh, in my life. I mean, I feel like you know I started to read these works of Abhinavagupta. Uh, in my early years in graduate school, some 40 something years ago. And so, you know, there's, there's an inner relationship in a certain sense with these texts and kind of living. I mean, you know, I'm in my office right now in Santa Barbara and, and across from me are, you know, all the texts in Sanskrit of the tradition. And that's what I do mainly is, you know, not just read them in a kind of superficial way, but, but 
you know, digest them, assimilate them, take them in, live with those teachings in that way. I mean, I had two meditation teachers. I don't necessarily, we need to go down that road right now, but I had two meditation teachers in my life uh, and I did, you know, long sadhanas with both of them. I also had an academic teacher in graduate school who passed away. And I've also interacted with many, many of the great kind of scholarly figures and also saintly figures um, in India over my lifetime, but that now, you know, at age 72, in a certain sense that I am, it's, you know, that that's kind of, you're on your own, you know, it's kind of, it's like, here we are, you know, it's like, take all of that and, and really. So, so if I could ask, and, and when you go into the text, obviously these are texts that you've lived with in, in a very intimate way for, for 40, 50 years. Yeah. Uh, do you continually discover uh, oh. and, and deep in understanding it, endless. Through it absolutely endless it's it's endless it's astonishing actually it's overwhelming many times that you open something and you go how did i not see this i've seen the right. same past you know it's that right. and it's that continuous surging of of kind of revelatory insight that assembles itself spontaneously and it's part of the it's part of the living character of these particular texts in that way that they have that capacity to summon and activate and elicit that continuity of 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 seeing as into that into that you know into that endlessness. Yes, very much. So. I, I have one more question, Phil, if I could yeah. ask, and that is uh, along these lines. Uh, in your years of teaching, uh, whether it's at the university or elsewhere, uh, were there occasions when there was some student out there that immediately got it, like you felt like you had a connection with that student from many many millennium back, and that uh, that uh, they heard what you were teaching and then all of a sudden that was enlivened in them what they had studied maybe before. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think I, you know, of course I, I'm very careful about talking about different people and so on, but I think that that, that happens, you know, that, def that definitely happens that, I mean, you know, as a teacher, a teacher is here to serve individuals and to, to really sort of selflessly serve in that way. And so then, People come with their past experience, their past karma. We don't necessarily know what that is. And we don't, you know, I don't presume to be able to judge as it were, you know, where a person is, anything like that. But certainly there is many times this spark of recognition, this spark of a kind of, of a kind of energy of a certain sort that makes that individual then, you know, be very much interested in pursuing you know, an ongoing process of consideration and study. And there are, there are quite a number of individuals like that, you know, that I've interacted with over the last 15 years in particular. And then yes, in the university setting, yeah, there were students who came along, certainly who you felt there was a specialness about them. You recognize them as, you know, very super intelligent or having some particular inner, you know, kind of feature of destiny in their life that they, they're they going to feed on this kind of knowledge. and. You know, as teachers, then also, as you guys know, you don't always see the rest of the story. It's sometimes, you know, 20 years later, somebody will contact you and say, you know, that particular course or that particular paper I had to write or that particular set of interest. Yeah. Anyway, stories like that. But right. definitely. Yeah, it's it's it is very much alive. And you feel like there's also a mysteriousness to that. You know, there's a kind of a um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Have you been to Kashmir, Paul? No, this is one of the sadnesses of my life. I haven't. Me too. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, from a from a political perspective. I really don't want to, you know, say much about that. But it's. I think it has continued to be 
dangerous and it's hard to judge. And then I think, I mean, for many years of my life, I just didn't have the money. I mean, I was just a fairly <laughs> impoverished, you know, a, a professor and so on. Uh, but then, uh, I mean, I've been to India, you know, many, many, many times, but never to Kashmir. And I, I dream of going there, actually. I mean, I see photographs of it. I'll meet you there. I, I me right. too. Me too. It's a deal. And, you know, ever since I read about it, there's two chapters in Autobiography of a Yogi back yes. to back. We don't yes. go to Kashmir. We go to Kashmir. Exactly. And exactly. ever since I read about it there, I said, I want to go to that place. That's right. And then I knew people who had been there. Yes. And then by the time I started going to India, um, it was pretty dangerous. Yeah. And it's right. hard to judge. It's really hard to judge, you know. Hopefully and, time will come. Yeah. Yes. I would love, I would love it very much. So, you know, very much. Uh, so. I have a friend who was there recently, actually. But, oh, um, wonderful. A, a question, another elementary question, Paul, but I know uh, the, we've been using terms that some of our listeners won't be familiar with. We talked about Shiva, mm -hmm. um, talked about Shakti. You, you mentioned that, you know, this is a, a Shakti Shiva, uh, it would be a more appropriate name, right. but that, that aspect of Shakti in relation to Shiva's see, always it strikes me as very important and uh, often kind of mistrivialized. Uh, so maybe you can explain. Well, I think that I think that you know the tradition itself offers us this concept of what they call the Rudra Yamala or the Rudra pair, which is this this sort of mutual relationship that is dyadic in its character in which there's difference, but non-difference. Um, there is the, the non-difference of ultimate absoluteness in which no differentiation is possible. And yet the surging up of this, this, this relationship in a certain sense that is intrinsic to the very heart of existence itself in which there is this absoluteness and its fundamental potency. And though, you know, at the surface of life, then we do get, for example, a gender differentiation, Shiva being male and Shakti being female. We know that in the tradition itself, the understanding of Shakti is that it is everywhere. It is, it is inside everybody, no matter how they're configured or what their differentiated sort of form may be. And it is, the, you know, this aliveness of everything that exists on many, many different levels. And that is, you know, it's recognizable no matter where you turn, you're going to see manifestations or movements or sequences or expressions of this exquisiteness that then occur in a variety of different ways. The Shaiva tradition says that she has a, a kind of a dual character in the sense that she is responsible. She is the force of freedom that is responsible for concealment. And then she is simultaneously the force of freedom that is responsible for the, the, the liberation and the ultimate removal of that concealment and that playfulness of hide and seek in a certain sense of you know, her, her energy that it, it appears everywhere, but everywhere that she appears, she is concealing something. She's hiding something. She is not revealing, she's not, you know, so on. And then in a certain kind of trajectory or a certain kind of relationship with that potency, then she begins to operate sequentially to reveal, to open, to illuminate 
to you know instruct, guide, and 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 kind of draw the person into uh, increasing stages of realization and of you know of ecstatic vision and of attainment uh, and so on in that way. So Shakti, you know, it's as I said, the 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 Shakta Shaiva tradition and has these different goddesses. For example, you have. This the, the she's called Shri Para, but the word Para means ultimate. Uh, but she's many times associated with the word. She is the supreme word of the absolute consciousness. She's a form, a tantric form, really, from an art historical perspective, uh, of of Mahasaraswati, the goddess of poetry and inspiration and wisdom, etc., and so on. And and she is also associated with this notion of she is the the nectar dispensing goddess. So she is said to sit, you know, in the thousand petal lotus above the head and, and, and shower the individual practitioner with streams of this, this, this amrita, this nectar of, of existence itself in that way. And she is, she is one, she is in a triad. This is where you get this term trika. Many times you'll hear this term trika, the triadic school, um, because there are three goddesses and she has two accompanying goddesses who are ferocious. So she is Saumya. She is sweet, beautiful, exquisite, uh, you know, friendly in that way. And then her two accompanying goddesses, Shri Parapara and Shri Apara, are very frightening. And they represent other aspects of life in which there's a kind of different kind of, you know, I call it a kind of ferocity of intent uh, in reality itself uh, that is not necessarily always so, you know, cuddly and friendly, etc. And so you know, that, that's one school, the so-called Trika school. You have a different school that Abhinavagupta also writes about that is associated with the goddess Kali. Not Kali so much as she is understood, particularly, you know, we've become accustomed to Bengali representations of Kali, et cetera, and so on with the lolling tongue. You know, Dakshineshwar, the most exquisite murti probably that I've ever seen is the, the Ramakrishna temple, the, 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 the Kali there, um, Baba Tarani, she's called the one who, Causes you to cross across uh, transmigration, uh, but but Kali in the in the earlier tradition is a sequence goddess. She is the one who is in charge of all the sequences that exist in all of reality. The word in Sanskrit is krama. So this idea of of sequentiality. Um, you know, we hear this word sequence sometimes. We think of gene sequencing or whatever, but in fact. You know, once you begin to examine everything in life happens in sequences, of course, time, but everything, actually, everything in existence is, is controlled by and appears and shows itself in the manifestation of sequences. So Kali or Mahakali, as she's called, she has a, a number of other names in the tradition, is, is the goddess of that particular so-called Krama traditions. You have the Trika, the Krama, these are what are called yogini. They're yoginis, not in the sense of female practitioners, but goddesses of the esoteric uh, Shakta, Shaiva, Tantric tradition. Then you get another goddess who is known as Kubjika, um, and she is associated with Kundalini, uh, and then the fourth goddess that I mentioned before, Lalita Tripura Sundari, who's many times just called Sri, uh, the, 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 the goddess of that particular tradition. These four goddesses, in a certain sense, represent aspects or dimensions of the Mahashakti as they are found in uh, what we could call ordinary life itself, but also as they appear 
and show themselves in the extraordinary sequences of the rising toward enlightenment and illumination in that way. And there are different sadhana practices then that are associated with each of these goddesses, quite intricate and complicated, but which also have sort of, uh, you know, I call them compactified versions of these sadhanas uh, that are more amenable for us as Westerners uh, and so on, in which then really what these masters were after was, you know, I call it a, a kind of hyper acceleration of attainment on the path. They were in a rush, they were in a hurry. They were the people who were like, it's gotta be this lifetime. <laughs> uh, and they were teaching, you know, the teaching of Jiva Mukti of liberation while you're still alive right, right. in this body. So, so anyway, that's a little bit more about, you know, this, this tradition and the presence of Shakti within it. And you're right, many times when people hear Kashmir Shaivism, they think, oh, it's all just about Shiva. It's a male oriented tradition in a certain kind of way, or he's the, you know, the destroyer God. By the way, you know, it's, I say, well, yes, he could be understood as the destroyer God, but it's also about radical transformation. How do you take a present circumstance and radically transform it into something it, it transmutes into something bigger, better, more powerful, shedding, as it were, its previous form and then appearing in a, in a different kind of form. That's the sort of more kind of esoteric or sadhana oriented understanding of Shiva in that way. Particularly, you know, in, the, in this tradition, you also have the figure of Bhaidava. Bhaidava is the, the, the naked form of Shiva, wanders around with a scary skull in his hand. If you've been to Varnasi, you know that the, the Kapala Mochanagat, that's the place where the skull drops out of Lord Bhaidava's uh, hand, and then he becomes the, he's the, he's the sheriff, actually. Varanasi, there's a temple, the Kalabhairava temple in Varanasi. He's the he's kind of the person who gives you permission to visit all the sacred sites, although hardly anybody goes to that temple anymore. But <laughs> this idea of Bhaidava right. is very much at the center of the tradition. And you know, for me, I've studied for many, many years also this text called the Vijnana Bhaidava Tantra, which in my mind is one of the most important texts that appears in this tradition because it, it is, to my knowledge, the only tantra, at least that we have access to so far, and there's a lot more to be discovered in so many different libraries and manuscript holdings in India, who knows what's in there, um, that is focused on meditation. You know, this Vijnana Bhairava Tantra is entirely focused on the practice of meditation. It transcends all of these uh, sort of forms of the goddess in a certain kind of way. And it's just focused on this understanding of what, you know, what happens when you meditate? What are the different dimensions and aspects of meditation? It's an exquisite, fascinating, I call it a treasure text uh, of the tradition. And, you know, we study it uh, as well. How does the, how does the uh, Shiva's Adi Yogi fit in? Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, it, that's exactly right. That's, that's actually the face of Shiva. He's often called Mahadeva. When you hear this term Mahadeva, that's Lord Shiva sitting, you know, in the Himalayas, uh, as I said, in, in, in asana posture, oftentimes, you know, with snakes wrapped around him in meditation and deep samadhi, et cetera, and so on with this trishul, uh, with, you know, the, there's a little lizard and a parrot in the tree. There's a crystalline stream that goes by. There's a shivalinga many times, you know, beautiful forest, et cetera, and so on. So that's the, that's Shiva as the, the Lord of yoga and the Lord of yogis. You know, it's a very, very beautiful form. Uh, of Shiva and it's Shiva kind of solitary, you know, he's, he's apart from, he's not really apart from the Shakti ever. There can never be, you know, that, that separation, but the, 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 the sort of the form of Shiva 
in which there is no female representation in that way. Whereas most of these other traditions, you have dyadic couples, pairs, or then you also have representations of solitary goddesses because then the goddesses rise up to prominence. Uh, they're either solitary or to indicate their superiority, they're seated on Bhairava forms as well. The Bhairava forms are their asana mats, as it were, that they, they sit on. So anyway, this is a lot of right. very beautiful. Well, well, uh, we, we will have to do a, uh, well, Paul, thank you for your time. And we'll have to do a part three because there's, there's, we could go, we could do a whole series. There's so much. Uh, that you have to uh, to offer our listeners. So well, let's dig yes. a little deeper. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, Paul. And you, um, we'll refer our viewers and listeners to uh, Paul's website, which is bluethroatyoga.com. We'll have that and posted up. Yeah. It'll be posted on, on the website. Paul, thank Wonderful you so much. You Great to see you again. Thanks for Great coming. Thanks for being with us. And um, we'll see you around. Fabulous. Take care. Wonderful. Take care. Thank you very much.